poetry for me was not an escape. It wasn't dreamy visions, but in some ways it was the opposite of dream. It was a kind of deeper awakening to what individual voice might be and what an inwardness might be, what a subjectivity might be, particularly after having seen it crushed. Welcome to Cambridge Forum. I'm Mary Stack, the Executive Director, and today we're delighted to welcome a multi-talented artist, Peter Sachs, to talk about his work and help us explore the art of resistance. Drawing from his anti-apartheid activism and multicultural experiences, Sachs creates an inspiring global cast of writers, artists, philosophers, and activists who have all resisted oppression over the past 200 years. Each portrait consists of a face embedded in a tactile, multi-layered composition of fabric, paint, personal items, and text. The exhibit is also immersive. Alongside the visuals, there's an audio collage of voices of numerous contemporary literary, social, political, and cultural figures reading the words of selected resistors. Welcome, Peter. Thank you. So let's start with the beginning your South African roots. Yeah. So a very quick sketch of your childhood uh, before your life-changing trip to Detroit in the 1960s, where you arrived in the middle of the race riots. So were you always an activist at heart or, or did America change you? Well, I think since <laughs> I was rather young, uh, that year occurred when I was just 16 turning 17. So I can't call myself an activist at age 15 or 16, although I was immediately um, gathering the weight of the atrocity of that regime as it impinged on every life. And um, so there was an inchoate but increasingly urgent sense that this cannot be the way people are supposed to live and partly spurred my desire as a young man to get out of the country uh, for a year, and that happened to coincide with the year of the race riots in Detroit. And so my exposure to the American civil rights movement and how that had so much resonance with a movement that was building, but horribly repressed in the 1950s and 1960s within South Africa, within my experience. So it was while in Detroit, recognizing that mere democracy might not be the solution to race problems or problems of inequality that I realized that political systems are just far more complex and uh, difficult to solve than I had imagined as a younger person where I thought all we need is one man, one vote and everything will be all right. So my views changed enormously and, and it changed the course of my life because I had actually begun medical school and under the weight of this experience during which I was also, was the assassination of Martin Luther King and what was going on on the actual streets of Detroit, not to mention reading for the first time books that had been banned in South Africa, works by Frederick Douglass up to James Baldwin. So uh, it was a real opening of consciousness. And when I went back to South Africa, I was a different person and then became much more involved with political work. So let's take a quick look at two of the portraits um, along yes. the lines you're talking of. Nelson Mandela, of course, everybody knows. Uh, and then Stephen Biko was actually a friend of yours eventually. Yes. Uh, both were icons of the anti-apartheid movement. Yeah. And I should say, uh, since we're mentioning icons, in a way, what I've been trying to do in this entire series, which really began 
as you were saying, over the past few years, under the pressure of what looked like a surge of injustice and racial discrimination and uh, white supremacy in the United States, it was giving me this terrifying sort of deja vu of, wait a second, this looks like we're moving back towards the kind of assumptions of apartheid. So I was 13 when Mandela was sentenced to, um, to prison. And he was in prison all the time that I was there and all the time that I was gone until 1990. And so the effort in these works was to somehow bring back images that had been suppressed in my childhood. You were literally forbidden. You could be prosecuted for displaying images of Mandela or of other banned persons like Oliver Tambo. And yes, we, we idolize a figure like Mandela, but one always has to remember that behind that face, there's all the faces of those people that he was representing and that worked with him, uh, like Oliver Tambo and Sisulu, Albertina Sisulu, and many others uh, who gave their lives. So this is a matter of my recollecting and wanted to give physical presence to these figures who were so important to me as a young person. And definitely Mandela with his extraordinary moral compass and moral force, even though one couldn't quote him or see his image, one knew he was there. Mm. And so it's a matter of how is he gonna get out of prison? How is this entire society gonna get out of prison? Similarly for, but later for Stephen Biko, uh, when I had gone back after Detroit, we were on the same student representative council. We became friends and he was four years older than I was, um, but we became close. And I left the country in 1970 and he was of course uh, killed seven years later, uh, beaten to death in detention. Um, but his vision of how the struggle ought to evolve was one that was in some ways challenging to me because it involved a period of separating the black movement from the white, what had been a multiracial student organization. Uh, and yet, as he kept saying, we hope that South Africa will one day be in a position to show the world a genuinely human face that transcends questions of racial discrimination. So he has been uh, a crucial figure for me and I wanted to summon him up as part of this lineage that I would gradually explore. And in each case, looking at the Mandela, or looking at the Biko, these fragments of clothing, the human presence, the tactile pressure of the materiality, so that it's not just a photograph, but it's a resistant object of its own. And the face tends for me to be emerging out of a background. You could call it the background of history. It could be in some ways hard to discern because we have to work to dredge and to resume our closeness to some of these figures that are constantly in danger of being forgotten or repressed uh, as they were you know, back then. So uh, that led me to start seeking the physical company of these persons that had shaped and inspired me and that I felt were necessary for our, our own time. And regardless of country, facing the kinds of dictatorships that were threatening democracies across the world, uh, the kinds of discrimination and racism that were still prevalent uh, right here in this country. So they were icons, but I wanted to make my own personal offerings to those icons and have those offerings somehow merge with the image, if that makes sense. Yeah, so it, wasn't, yeah. it, it became something that carried my own physical investment right. in them. So uh, you come back to South Africa after being in Detroit and yeah. switch to studying now politics and philosophy. 
Yes. Um, and then you win a scholarship to get out of South Africa, thank goodness. Um, yeah. You do a bit of military service or something there, didn't you? Well, it was getting very complicated, the situation. Mm. And friends were being put into house arrest and an actual prison. And I felt that I just, um, at the time, it, from 1969-1970, where the multiracial anti-apartheid movement seemed to be fraying, I became quite demoralized for a period, mm. and I wasn't prepared to embrace violence and go actually underground into the world of sabotage, and still wanted to get a better sense of what it was to be human. So I did indeed go out of the country in 1970. So how did you discover the power of the pen? That How was that little quick journey? Or maybe it was a long journey. Yeah, it, it was a journey that was already embryonic, because it wasn't so much the power of the pen as the power of the voice. And mm. uh, poetry for me was not an escape. It wasn't, uh, I, I know you've, you mentioned sort of dreamy visions, but in some ways it was the opposite of dream. It was a kind of deeper awakening mm. uh, to what individual voice might be and what an inwardness might be, what a subjectivity might be, particularly after having seen it crushed in so many places around me. So it seemed to be, a form of expression which for you know thousands of years has done justice to aspects of the human experience that ordinary language or other forms hadn't quite addressed. So I did fall absolutely in love with it, but it was with poetry as an engaged art. Mm -hmm. And the persons that I were reading were often people who were speaking out and uh, they might be resisting not a particular political regime, but they were also resisting larger things like time and death and grief. So yeah, I, I really was interested in, in, in that entire art form. Um, you feature some other, well, a multi-cast of uh, all sorts of nationalities and backgrounds in, yes. in this exhibit, but you do look historically at the Frederick Douglasses, the oh, Harriet sure. Tubman, and then Rosa Parks. So clearly the civil rights thing was growing and growing um, cross-culturally. Very, very much so. And so these seem to me to be figures inseparable from the struggle for, for justice in South Africa. And in fact, those figures had been inspired by some of these figures. And many of these were also banned their writings, uh, whether it was Douglas or as I was mentioning before, Baldwin and others. Um, but a figure like Rosa Parks, uh, you know, in each painting, and you can actually almost make out some of the writing in the background, but I've written excerpts from her autobiography or from other things that she had said. But the fact that she admits to her fear and has a passage in which she says, knowing what to do diminishes fear and how she admitted the kinds of courage it needed. But also just in terms of my own visual sense, I wanted to embed her in a very vibrant work that had a lot of cloth and fabric. She herself, after all, had been a seamstress. Mm. And as a young child, she had made quilts at an age younger than most people had made quilts. And it struck me when she described um, the moment on the bus, she said, determination came over my body like a quilt on a cold night. And that idea of our making a fabric of our resolve, uh, and, and yes, it has vibrancy, and yes, it is made up of fragments, but it seemed to me important to try to put that together along with a tribute to her place in that, in that moment in, 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 in 1955. 
a moment that coincides with the, you know, it's it's a beginning moment for Martin Luther King, since he starts the bus, well, you know, he's elected to lead the bus boycott. So all of these figures seem to me absolutely integral to one another. And that is indeed one of the things that I was trying to do was to start giving a larger face to the face of resistance. Mm. So yes, it includes Tubman and it includes uh, Rosa Parks and it includes Douglas. And I did many images of Douglas because after all, there were so many images of him and just recognizing the power of the face in a political context and how self-conscious he was about presenting the, the, the absolute dignity and indomitable uh, stature of, of his being, having been an escaped slave. Mm. Um, all of that was crucial to this larger emerging picture. So we talk about the word escape there. Um, oh. Never totally escaped the lure of the text, it seems to me, True. although you fell into art and um, yes. you, you said you kind of needed a new space that wasn't occupied by words or I'm paraphrasing. Uh, and you said your art was a way to allow parts of my life into the work that hadn't been given the same kind of expression in the poems. So this love affair with poetry, why is Langston Hughes so important to you? Well, because it wasn't just the overtly political activists, because I was exploring um, the degree to which culture itself plays an important role in establishing um, major societal change. And the Harlem Renaissance was of course, one of the most eloquent and powerful examples, whether it was in poetry or in art figures um, emerging out of that movement. And for me, Hughes was a, a, an electrifying marriage of a very individual voice and yet somebody who was speaking out of a definite community and the form of his and diction of his language where, where it would pull on music and jazz and folk rituals and hymns. And there was a integrative force in his work, uh, just that um, the resonance of it, the rhythm of it, the hypnotic ability to move an audience was something that obviously appealed to me deeply. And I know we'll listen to a piece being read by Clint Smith, but I should mention also that Hughes appealed to me because he was also very internationally um, aware. And his love, for instance, of the Spanish poet Federico Garcia Lorca, uh, he translated Lorca, Lorca who was assassinated by the fascists in Spain during the Spanish Civil War. Um, but the quality to be true to your locale, the Harlem setting, the situation in the United States, and yet be also aware of larger human struggles across the globe, uh, all of this was why Hughes became a very important figure for me. There's also a raw honesty about his words. I think yes. that um, it's very modern. Yes, uh, and his, his form, and he's opened the range of tones from celebration to disgust, from grief to uh, kinds of joy and exaltation of beauty. And it just seemed that there was a whole human being that was finding its way into the air and, and uh, certainly onto the page. So I wonder if it's possible. We've got a recording uh, from the exhibit, uh, which is Clint Smith. Well, there's Langston, yes. There's Hughes. Harlem, what happens to a dream deferred? Does it dry up like a raisin in the sun or fester like a sore and then run? Does it stink like rotten meat or crust and sugar over? like a syrupy sweep. 
Maybe it just sags like a heavy load. Well, the end is, as we know, or does it explode? Right, does and, it explode? Correct. And something about that explosive force, I was trying to get some of the vibrancy of that into this portrait where he's doubled between the figure and the more pensive figure with the fist to the side of his head and the connection, that red connection between them, mm. um, pulling those together. But the explosive force of his language and its resonance is something that I think is, um, I wanted to make it part of the portrait. So, so, so they are the words inscribed in, and you're right in saying that some of these are trying to give texture to text. <laughs> same origin of the word after all, but that's a lot of what these portraits were doing. These figures were enormously important by virtue of their language as well as by their actions. And I wanted to give that language a physical presence, often by using materials that were themselves uh, resistant. They, they were resisting being trashed. I used bits, odds and ends, you know, bits of cloth that are sent to me from all over the world, um, bits of my own shirts, buttons, things like that. So one's kind of creating the vestments of a person's presence, uh, not just their lightness, but something that is a kind of embodiment. And uh, I was doing, you know, so, so Hughes would be a nice example. And I should say that for each of these figures, there is an accompanying audio uh, track because we had said that, Auden had said the words of the dead are modified in the guts of the living but we wanted the words of the dead to be actually reiterated and voiced and given new life by the voices of the living. And so that's why we invited um, many strangers, actually, people I didn't know. We just sent them a list of the figures who were going to be portrayed and said, would you like to choose something yourself? So it became collaborative and read it. And we got an eight hours of recordings, having asked for just two minute clips each. So you can imagine the deluge. And then um, these got edited and collaged into four one-hour tracks. And we're just hearing a couple of excerpts from those. But they're all a sort of soundscape as you move through the Rose Museum. Just as I should say, to listen to Mandela being read by his grandson, Kweku Mandela, uh, was extremely moving to me also. And Mandela's sense of the long continuity, the long walk to freedom and saying, I dare not linger to feel that there is this generational continuity. It's a lot of why I was inspired to make these, hoping that there will be this kind of transmissive momentum of these figures of resistance to the next on generation. Somebody's asked a question here in the um, chat. Uh -huh. Can you talk a little bit about your choices of fabric, texture mm. and paint in relation to the images of some of the people you've honored? Yes, I tend to choose fabrics that seem to have the life force of the persons with whom I'm working, um, but in one uh, crucial effect is that if I use the same patterns of material or the same swatches of whether it's cotton or lace or 19th century linens, um, I could share that same substance amongst various figures. So that even if you didn't think that let's say Mandela was automatically connected to Toni Morrison or Franz Fanon or uh, Hannah Arendt, those portraits will use some of the same ingredients. But having said that, that creates a sort of visual link between them. But the specificity for each one 
um, might be, for instance, in the Rachel Carson, which I deliberately chose images and cloth that would either communicate her sense of the oceans or of the beautiful fragility of the texture of our planet. And so there I was using intricate lace work. But in each case, they might be using the colors of the national flag, uh, whether it's of uh, Ukraine or in the instance of a, of a terrific figure who's not that well known, Helen Joseph, who was a member of the ANC, I use the actual colors of the ANC flag, the green, black, and yellow, or the Warsaw uprising and the Polish resistance images for Anna Swear or Zbigniew Herbert or Milosz, I use the colors of the Polish resistance. So these are all very carefully made, even though this looks like a kind of arbitrary mess sometimes, <laughs> the, the, the choices are really quite, for me, meaningful. And I should just say that sometimes I want the face to be almost on the verge of um, being covered up mm. or the contrary, seeming to come towards us through a kind of scrim of what might be interference, either our own tendencies to neglect, not pay enough attention, or history's uh, way of obliterating the past or deliberate repression of the past, so that these faces seem to come at us through something. And it's partly my own sense of my own consciousness as this strange medium, this kind of fabric through which these faces appear and recede, and but nevertheless persist. I'm not quite sure if I understand this question. How do you think these people were able to overcome their anger and somehow turn it into righteous, constructive, patient passion? You know, it's a fantastic question that we all need to ask. A number of these figures did have faith, Christian faith or Jewish faith in some of the cases, Islamic faith, but the sense that there is a metaphysical transcendent source of authority that is greater than the secular authority of their particular regime. Or in some instances, I think we might be talking about um, some of the, my, the Russian poets like Ahmatova or Mandelstam. They generated their own sense of what it was to be human that transcended anger. They would draw also upon just poetic authority and saying there's a higher way to be than merely despairing. And so the inspiration comes from various sources, but I think that it does constitute a kind of faith. And in some instances, in fact, quite a few, whether it's Rosa Luxemburg in prison or Antonio Gramsci in prison under the Italian fascists, their sense of joy and openness to happiness and realizing that that's a fuller way to be than merely bitter. A number of them resisted. Part of their resistance was the resistance against bitterness or the resistance against allowing their lives to be crunched into some horrendous state of suffering. So there's many ways in which those resources emerge, but that's been one of the joys of, of working here is to feel in contact with that and to try and draw upon it. You're listening to The Art of Resistance with artist Peter Sachs talking about resistance, his latest solo exhibit of 88 portraits currently on display at the Rose Museum at Brandeis University. Okay, your collection of points demonstrate very clearly that this kind of oppression can really occur anywhere at any time, across border, culture, age, gender. 
Yes. And two of your subjects um, are Russian poets who suffered yes. by opposing Stalin, Anna Akhmatova and Osip Mandrushtam. Yes. Um, I think we're going to hear a clip of Anna's poetry, which speaks to this business of getting the word out. Requiem, 1935 to 1940. No foreign sky protected me. No stranger's wing shielded my face. I stand as witness to the common lot, survivor of that time, that place. Instead of a preface, in the terrible years of the Yeshov terror, I spent 17 months waiting in line outside the prison in Leningrad. One day, somebody in the crowd identified me. Standing behind me was a woman with lips blue from the cold, who had, of course, never heard me called by name before. Now she started out of the torpor common to us all and asked me in a whisper, everyone whispered there, can you describe this? And I said, I can. Then something like a smile passed fleetingly over what had once been her face. Anna Akhmatova. Well, Akhmatova was, of course, a very incredibly courageous woman, absolutely indomitable, and refused to be silenced um, by Stalin, even though her writings were banned. And she was under virtual house arrest for much of her life. Her first husband was executed, her son was in prison, that's what she's referring to standing outside the prison. But that ability to say, I can describe this. When you asked earlier about why I had some reverence for the power of the pen or, or of the human voice, it's, it's that. Because if things remain unspeakable, undescribed, they have no way of staying in the memory of future generations. And so Ahmatova stands, as she said, witness to that time of that place. And she wrote beautifully about that entire moment. I wish it were a moment, decades of Stalinist repression. And of course, there's a horrible resonance now uh, with you know, Stalin's descendant, Putin, similar kind of psychotic dictatorship and megalomania. So she is most definitely, and has been for me for many years, a complete lighthouse. As was her, has been her friend Asip Mandrashtam, who actually perished in the Gulag in 1938, having written a poem in 1933 that very, very explicitly and unforgettably denounced Stalin, a time when that was practically suicidal. But he too felt he had the absolute authority and, and the requirement to speak out. And towards the end, very shortly before he died, he wrote a very small poem, and I should say his poems were forbidden to be written down, so he would often commit them to the memory of others, sometimes to other prisoners. And we only have some of his poems because afterwards we could ask his widow, Nadezhda Mandelstam, who memorized many of them, to transcribe them. And just four quick lines where he addresses basically Stalin or the regime, and he says, you took away the oceans. This is when he was in confinement and you took away all the space, all the room. You gave me my shoe size in earth with bars around it. Where did it get you? Nowhere. You left me my lips and they still shape words even in silence. So that persistent recourse 
keeping the spirit alive. These are forms of resistance. And I think what moves me is that people like Ahmatova and Mandelstam wouldn't have had the means to elicit their own spirits had not been for the medium of their art form. So it becomes a kind of current and a vehicle and a weapon or a shield, I should say. Incredible. And the importance of keeping memory alive, passing the memory somehow. Yes. It's not forgotten. Well, I wanted to thank you, Peter. Um, thank you. The insight, the art. Thank you. Um, Cambridge Forum has been made possible through the generosity of Herbert and Dorothy Vetter, the Lowell Institute, the Massachusetts Cultural Council, the Cambridge Community Foundation, and of course, you. So if you want to sign up to our members list, feel free to go to the website, cambridgeforum.org. Thanks to everyone for joining us, and I will see you all again soon.